The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're blessed to be joined by two innovators, uh, Rich Felder and Rebecca Brent. Thanks for joining us, guys. Our pleasure. That's great to have you here. And and, uh, um, Rich, you and I met some some time ago at the University of Illinois, I think in connection with your getting uh, an honorary doctorate there, if I recall correctly. That's right. I think we had met before that, actually. Wasn't it Arizona or Arizona State? No, there you go. Yep. So uh, anyway, so we we bumped into each other um, from time to time, and um, I and uh, and I actually I'm I've never uh, interviewed a husband and wife team before, and I'm a little nervous about it. So I want to give our, uh, equal time to equal partners. But I'm going to start with you, Rich. Rich, you're an engineer, an educator, an author of um, longtime leading text in uh, chemical engineering, and a pioneer in teaching improvement in, in, in engineering and STEM. But let's go back in the log cabin. What were some of the early influences that got you on the path that you followed later in your career? Okay. Um, I uh, started at uh, my first and only faculty position at North Carolina State, State University back in 1969. And for the first um, 15 years or so, I was a <clears throat> totally conventional engineering professor, um, writing proposals and getting grants and doing the research and preparing my lectures and delivering them and giving the exams and so forth. And uh, I went on like that for about... 15 years, and it uh, gradually occurred to me that things were not going quite the way that I had in mind in my classes. Um, I was putting information out, but uh, a lot of students weren't taking it in. And uh, at that point, I had two significant influences. I was at a conference, and I walked into a session, an education session, at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers conference. And uh, Jim Stice of the University of Texas was giving a talk, and he was talking about teaching. 
And it became clear to me after a while that this guy was making teaching the focus of his career, which is not something that I thought possible. You know, I knew you had to teach, and it was important, but research was the engine that drove the train. And I listened to him talking, and that sort of put it in my mind that it is possible to make teaching the focus of a uh, career in higher education. And I had a similar experience uh, at a subsequent meeting when I went in and heard Don Woods giving a talk, and he was doing the same thing, um, making teaching the focus of his career. And it took me about 10 years after that to figure out that teaching and learning and students and the problems that they had and how to overcome them were both more challenging and more interesting to me than uh, designing distillation columns and doing scientific studies of permeation of gases and membranes. And over a period of time, uh, my focus shifted and... I eventually let my last graduate students filter out of the pipeline, and the rest of the way was spent on teaching and studying teaching and doing research on teaching and how to do it better. Beautiful story, uh, Rich, and uh, I want to check in with Rebecca, too. Rebecca, you're president of Education Designs. You were in charge of faculty development for the Succeed Coalition in the 90s. You've been involved with ASEE teaching improvement programs for many years, Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you and Rich have given, I've seen different numbers, over 600 workshops on faculty development. Is that right? Is that, do I have the number in the ballpark? That sounds about right. <laughs> about right, yeah. So, yeah, once you get up in those high numbers, it's hard to keep track. So, but let's hop in the time machine for you, too. And so, what were some of the early influences that put you on, on your path? Well, I started out as an elementary school teacher and mm. did that for about eight years and really loved that whole process. I taught um, the last year I was teaching fourth graders, really enjoying that. But I also was, was, hungry for more intellectual stimulation, and so I started in a doctoral program. And when I began to do that full-time, I got the opportunity to work with student teachers. And so that was the first time I had really had a chance to uh, work with someone at that very first stage of getting into the classroom where the rubber hits the road, if you want to use that cliché, but yes. that idea of what happens when you really get into practice. Um, and I enjoyed the one-on-one coaching element of that, mentoring, helping them to overcome the rough spots. So at that point, I realized I wanted to stay in teacher education, and, and I did that for a number of years as well. During that time, Rich and I... Uh, married, and we began to see all these common connections and interests in what we were doing in our work, and I just gradually um, sort of uh, became interested in the whole world of particularly engineering education, but STEM education. Um, I had worked on another project when I was uh, still at East Carolina University where we were preparing people to go into uh, classrooms to teach science and math in high schools who had never had any education courses. And so the idea was to sort of distill what the most important 
ideas were to equip them to be successful. And I think that really helped me when I started working with faculty. Uh, and I began thinking about what are the things that are most important uh, for for them to know for skills that they need to have in order to reach students and to help students um, reach their full potential. A beautiful story, uh, Rebecca, and and thanks for for mentioning in the timeline that when when you and Rich got married, in many ways you two are the what I might call the first family of engineering education reform, and and uh, so that it's it's actually it should be interesting to some of our listeners how it was that the um, when when the two of you met at this formative uh, point in your educational reform efforts. I, one of the things that we're interested in on. on um, Big Beacon Radio is in these uh, unleashing experiences that Mark Somerville and I talk about in A Whole New Engineer, and both of you have gone your own way in, in kind of unconventional ways and gone and done stuff that um, took some courage to do. I mean, Rich, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly a popular thing back in the 80s to go off and be a teacher. In fact, in many ways, that was the heyday when research was making a hard turn towards more and more dollars. You went the opposite direction. Uh, Rebecca, you went and left the comfort zone of um, uh, normal teaching and went into the strange land of engineering education. What, what, what or whom helped give you the courage to go your own way? Let's start with Rebecca this time. Well, I think... Um I think one influence was really rich, of course, uh, as an entree into the world of the STEM faculty and, and working with them. Um, and the transition uh, was a struggle for me at first because I, um, you know, I, I really felt that I wasn't communicating. I somehow was not connecting because the audience was so different from the uh, the teachers K-12 community that I had been working in before. And so I think, um, you know, he was a tremendous influence in helping me to figure out how do I talk to people (laughs) that are in this other world and, you know, what kind of language do I need to use to really get the message across. And then there are some um, wonderful people who served as um, sort of partners in the journey and role models Um, One person being Cindy Atman, who um, was a tremendous influence. She's at uh, University of Washington. At Washington, yeah. And and was a tremendous influence and help to me in that process. Beautiful. Rich, what about about you? uh, Well, it it was not a a rapid unleashing for me. Um, You know, in the story that I told before, I talked about changing my focus. That was a process that took place over about 10 years yep. um, after I realized that, you know, the teaching and learning were just more interesting and challenging and important to me than the technical part of engineering. I always enjoyed the technical part of engineering. I did research. I did reasonably well at it. Yep. But it just wasn't, it didn't feel as uh, satisfying as really doing a good job of teaching and learning about teaching. But um, I didn't make the transition until I was already a full professor, and I had reached a point in my career where if my uh, department head in the administration didn't like what I was doing, 
maybe the worst that they could do to me was deny me my one half of one percent merit raise, um, <laughs> which was the yeah. consequence that I could live with. Uh, and so over a period of time, I just got more and more involved with education, slowly released my activities in the technical research, and uh, after about that 10-year transition period, I finally said, okay, uh, I'm ready now, and I made uh, teaching and learning the whole enchilada of my career. So I don't know that I would characterize it as a particularly courageous thing to do, although I was aware of the fact that there were risks associated with it. And um, I still have some colleagues of mine, whom I won't mention by name, who still believe, I, I think, that if I had just stayed with permeation of gases and polymers and simulation of specialty chemical production processes, I might have made something of myself. Yeah, you might have made something of yourself. I've gotten some of that uh, from some of my colleagues and education as well. But it's interesting. You know, something we say that tenure is supposed to um, allow people to do this sort of thing, to go in a direction that they think is personally important that may not be popular. But the number of people that actually make the choice to head in in a contrary direction is not, I would argue, is not that that large. Well, yeah, and tenure does make it possible. I mean, as I was half-joking before when I said that the worst they could do was deny me the merit raise, but the fact of the matter is that there are many, uh, many of our colleagues who believe that research really is what it's about. Technical research is what it's about, and the teaching is just something that you also do as part of your job description. And so you do get a feeling of uh, somewhat disapproval from some of your colleagues when you choose to go in this direction. And uh, you've done it more radically than I have. I mean, I maintained my uh, tenured faculty position. You just cut the cords, gave up a tenured faculty position, and went whole hog into the consulting career that you've embarked on. And that would be my definition of something that really took courage because you were jumping off a cliff. Well, and, you know, fortunately I was eligible for some sort of pension, not as much of one as I might have had had I stayed. I appreciate your commenting on it. And from the outside it looks like I was almost foolhardy, but it, um, it, it, felt, it felt safe and felt like something that I needed to do um, too, and I appreciate your calling it out. So, so you guys have written a number of books and almost too many to mention. People can go on the uh, program page and, and look at your bios and, and um, go online and, and take a look at all the, all the things that you both have written. But you, your latest uh, book is called Teaching and Learning in STEM, a uh, practical guide. And um, uh, you know, what inspired this, this project? Uh, let's start with you, Rich, and then Rebecca. Well, we've given, uh, I'd say, probably more like 400 workshops and uh, several hundred seminars and invited talks on teaching. But we've talked a lot about teaching, some of it individual, most of it working together. And we uh, acquired a pretty good feeling for what causes problems in uh, what causes teachers' problems in the class. Problems with mastering their subject, of course, but also with just dealing with the 
um, hundreds of little obstacles that uh, faculty members uh, can put up to making changes and that students put up to um, being called on to do things that they're not comfortable with. And over the course of those hundreds of workshops, we've gotten probably every question that you can conceive of. And by trial and error, we found answers that we could give that people found helpful. Different ways of looking at things, different techniques that they could use, different ways, for example, of dealing with the resistance that students put up to being pushed out of their comfort zone. And uh, we decided that we had all of this knowledge that we'd acquired and sharing it with faculty members, uh, anywhere from 10 to 150 in a workshop, would uh, it would make sense for us to just write it all down and put it in the form of a book that had the potential to get to a much broader audience. And so uh, we made the decision to write the book, and 15 years later, uh, the book was done. Rebecca, uh, what would you add, and, and how would you describe um, the book to our listeners? Well, I would describe the book as a real... Um, mentor, mentor in, in between the covers maybe, uh, because what we've tried to do is to think about all the things that you need to do when you're new to the profession and just beginning to get started and thinking about some of the basics, uh, like just writing your syllabus and thinking about what you want students to be able to do and putting good questions together, that sort of thing, but it also has elements that can be very valuable throughout the, throughout their careers so that somebody who's been teaching a long time, we hope, can pick up the book and in the, in the section, uh, the third section of the book, which is a meaty one, uh, get a lot of help about how to teach good problem-solving skills looking yep. at critical and creative thinking. How do you inspire that with your students and, and make it happen in the classroom? Thinking about getting students to work together in teams, um, effectively communicate. So there's something there for everyone at whatever stage along the way. Um, and I think as we were thinking about doing the project, one of the things that I was thinking about is that there are individual teachers in schools everywhere, the tiniest little uh, isolated school, you know, all the way up to the big universities, places that have support for teaching and places that have nothing to support um, faculty as they learn their profession and learn how to teach well. And so I think the book is a way to reach people no matter where they are. Uh, and, and what kind of institution they may be at. Great. To just learn, yeah. learn more. Yeah, great, great stuff. And, and I think we want to dig into the, the book, uh, in a little bit, a little bit more detail. And, um, why don't we take a little bit of a break and, uh, we'll come back and after the break we'll talk some more, um, we'll talk more about teaching and learning in STEM.
Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your school or organization. Uh, and uh, we're rejoined by Rich Felder and Rebecca Brent, and uh, we're talking. We're in this segment. We're talking about their uh, new book, Teaching and Learning in, in STEM. And we um, introduced the book, and um, you know, this is aimed at at people that are. Uh, STEM and one of the primary audiences has to be people who are new to teaching STEM. So let's let's imagine that we've got some new assistant professors in the audience uh, listening to the show. Um, what are what are maybe the one, two, or three most important things that uh, you would tell them right now about effective uh, uh, teaching and learning? Let's uh, start with you, Rich. Okay, um, I think there are really two overriding messages or techniques that we talk about in the workshops that we give to essentially everybody, uh, but especially new professors. One of them is the idea that nobody ever really learned anything meaningful by sitting and listening to somebody uh, giving them a 50-minute lecture on what they're supposed to know. I think human beings learn meaningful information by doing things trying things out, getting them wrong the first time usually, either getting corrective feedback from somebody else or learning from their own mistakes, doing them again, getting better at it. And so what we try to tell the new professors is get away from the model of you're going to stand up there and tell them everything for 50 or 75-minute stretches. Tell them some information, give them and focus on the really important information and then give them an opportunity to process it. One of the things we've learned from reading about what the cognitive scientists have been discovering about the learning process is that the human mind has a really limited capacity for processing information consciously. And so if you present a little bit of information, provide some processing opportunity, a little time to reflect on it, and then give them an opportunity to try out whatever you're trying to teach them to do. Yes either individually or by working with each other in small groups. And that, of course, is active learning. And so that's the focal point. And it's easy to say active learning, but we have to spend quite a bit of time talking about 
how do you do that? How do you make it work? What can go wrong? And how do you make sure that it doesn't? And then probably the second uh, pillar of the structure that we're putting up in our workshops is the notion of learning objectives. And uh, a lot of people think that they write learning objectives when they write a syllabus and say, we're going to teach this, this, and this. But that's not what learning objectives are. Learning objectives are statements of things that students should be able to do if they have learned what you want them to learn. And so we spend quite a bit of time first defining learning objectives, giving examples of learning objectives at different levels of complexity, and then giving them opportunities to write learning objectives and giving them feedback on their objectives. And my, my personal belief is that if the people at our workshops can get the idea of using active learning, getting students actively engaged in their own learning process, and writing learning objectives and using them as the foundation of everything else you do in class, uh, what you cover, the activities that you conduct in class, the assignments that you give, and the exams that you give, if they don't do anything else we talk about in the workshop, that will be a tremendous step toward becoming the kind of teachers that they're capable of becoming. Yeah, nice. Rebecca, what would you add to that? Well, one thing I would say is that as you, as you dip into the book and look at um, these topics that Rich is talking, is talking about, they run all the way through this idea of what are the different ways we can get our students engaged, get them excited about their learning. Um, but there's also something else that I think is really important, and it's this idea of seeing your students as individuals, not just the sea of faces in front of you. And so in our book, one of the things you can do is to look through. We have what we call interludes in the book, and many of those, explore differences in students, just different ways they may approach their learning, uh, different motivations, um, what may motivate their learning, um, what kinds of things they may need to know or be interested in. And I think if you have that, that curiosity about your students and what they're like and what really excites them and can help them uh, to to dig in to the work that you, you want them to do and the skills you want them to acquire. I think that is a critically important thing. And so if you're new to teaching or if you're thinking, contemplating, a grad student contemplating a, an academic career, um, really putting your focus on students and caring about them and their learning can go a long way toward helping you over the the inexperience that may, you know, uh, cause a few problems along the way. Um, yeah. But in the book, we give a lot of ideas about how to navigate um, in those early experiences. Nice. And um, one of the things uh, I loved, uh, I was reading along, and I came across your citation of, Peter Elbow's embracing contraries, and so as we all as as we know, education is a very complex activity filled with contraries, or what uh, another author, Barry Johnson, calls polarities. We're a big fan of uh, polarity management on the show, and so in in what ways is the understanding of these contraries important uh, to becoming? Um, a good teacher. Let's start with you, Rebecca, and then we'll we'll go to Rich. 
Well, you touched on one of my uh, favorite parts of the whole teaching process, but thinking about, um, in Peter Elbow's words, he talks about being the gatekeeper and being the coach. And so in our teaching process, um, to just give an example to illustrate, in, in the teaching process, when I'm establishing um, my objectives for the course, when I'm telling about requirements, when we're going over the policies and procedures, I've got on my gatekeeper hat, and I want to set the bar high. I want to provide that challenge for students to really um, excel and do the best that they can do in whatever I'm trying to teach them. But I don't leave that gatekeeper hat on. After I've set the bar high, I put on my coach hat, and that's when I'm in supporting students, helping them, providing the kinds of um, steps they need along the way to really acquire the skills, the ways of thinking uh, that I want them to acquire. And then, you know, when the testing time comes, the evaluation, whatever it may be, I put back on my gatekeeper hat. And so it's, it's going back and forth between those roles. But I think this idea of challenge uh, coupled with support is just fundamental, especially when we're trying to teach our students um, skills that are outside of their comfort zone, you know, creative yeah. and critical thinking that they, they may never have been asked to do, solving real problems that are in a, in a very complicated context, and they, they uh, struggle and resist, and so that support is really, really important. Uh, Rich, uh, same question. What, what, what are uh, contraries? Uh, um, what's your take on contraries and their importance to becoming an effective uh, professor teacher? Yeah, um, I think it's an absolutely fundamental concept because we're always trying to do different things. We're called on to do different things as teachers. Being the gatekeeper and being the coach is one of those important contraries, but there are many others. One of the things I talked about before was active learning. And over my career, I've made a lot of noise about active learning, and I'm a firm believer in it, and there is an absolute ton of research evidence showing that getting students engaged works better than just making them passive recipients of information. Yep. But a lot of people get the message wrong. They think that what we're telling them in our workshops and in the book is abandon lecturing completely. It's a terrible technique and make all of your classes these festivals of activity. And that's not at all what we're saying. Some of the time you still have to lecture. You know more than your students do about what you're teaching, or at least I hope you do. And Part of the class time has to be spent with you presenting what you know that you want them to know. The message is don't make that the only thing you do. Provide balance. Some of the time you're lecturing for short periods of time. Some of the time you spend on activities. Another contrary is uh, the kind of information you're presenting. Uh, information comes, this is an oversimplification, but it comes in two major forms visual and verbal. Visual information, pictures, diagrams, sketches, flowcharts, demonstrations, videos. Verbal information is words, explanations, written and spoken. And what the cognitive scientists have told us is that um, 
We have limited capacities for processing either type of information, but if information comes in both channels, visual and verbal, uh, the chances are that more of it will stick. And so you put on your visual hat, to continue Rebecca's metaphor, and you present information in visual form with pictures and videos and sketches and demonstrations, and then you supplement that with explaining things from the front of the classroom, giving students things to read, and continuing to hopscotch back and forth. Um, and I could go on all day with these different sure. the balances of, of things that you have to do. Generally speaking, when you ask a question, should I do this or that, the answer is almost invariably both. And Elbow brings that out in his book in uh, many really clever ways. Yeah, nice. And 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 there's so many, as you say, there's so many of these uh, contraries or po- or polarities um, uh, out there. And and um, and and Mark and I get chastised by some in our book about suggesting that we want to head all in the direction. You know, some people have gone so far as to say whole, a whole new engineer is about creating this fluffy place where civil engineers would make bridges and they would all fall down and of course nothing could be further from the truth and the um the the empirical example that we like to give is Olin College being on the list of both hardest and most challenging schools as well as the most fun. And, no, absolutely, and it, it, absolutely and uh you know in that book which incidentally it's a it's a beautiful book um, but uh, the message that I got out of it is not uh, let's be like Olin College and get rid of traditional classroom teaching and lecturing altogether and make everything 100% project-based learning or uh, similarly with the, uh, the foundry. Let's make everything like that. No, at Illinois and at Olin, you can still find lecturing. Um, the key concept is balance. You don't make it the only thing you do. Well, there needs to be some, you know, so if you're going, if we have a place that is all about obedience and, uh, and direction from, from central authority, and then, then at some point we expect people to leave the university and become lifelong learners, where did they have the experience of that in their education? And so, a little bit and all these things can go a long way and the challenge is to to draw that line at some place that makes sense and that and where what that is will be different from culture to culture from institution to institution absolutely yeah so no i i i love your stuff and and in many ways uh you know you've both been wandering the planet talking about this for a long time to the point where um the things that you've been talking about um uh, have in some ways become the conventional wisdom of uh, uh, teaching and pedagogical um, reform. Um, yeah, we actually, I think, w- let's let's actually let's take a little bit of a break, and I want to come and come back and talk um, about what's what's been happening. How how has how have these messages worked out there in the world, and and uh, what's working, and what still seems to uh, be. Um, be slowing us down. This is Big Beacon Radio with our, our special guests, uh, Richard, Richard Felder and Rebecca Brent. And in the next segment, we're going to talk about uh, what's working and, and what still needs to be done.
you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon itself. Join us this fall for... Free webinars on 21st Century Educational Leadership and Change Acceleration. Watch BigBeacon.org for details or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at DEG at BigBeacon.org to find out more. And so we're uh, rejoined by Rich Felder and Rebecca Brent, um, co-authors of uh, Teaching and Learning in in STEM, uh, a practical guide. And and we were were talking about some of the ways in which uh, the – the messages that you've been spreading around the community have been taking hold. Uh, in many ways, they, you know, these things have become implanted in uh, teaching academies that that young professors have to take at some universities. Uh, uh, things like that. Uh, what, what's your What's your sense? You've been doing this a long time. What's your sense about the evolution of um, improvement in um, in teaching and learning? Let's start with Rebecca. Well, I think you're you're exactly right that the the use of more engagement, engaging strategies with students is certainly um, is much more widespread than it was when we first started. We sometimes tell the story about how when we first began to go and, and uh, give workshops, we'd ask after we talked a little bit about active learning, who's who's giving students these kinds of activities in, in class, and two or three hands in the room would go up. Now, uh, we ask if we ask the question, it's a much larger percentage. So many, many more people are realizing that they that active engagement is, is something that they should do that makes the class work better. And there are a lot of technologies that have helped to support that, too, with clickers and other tools that you can use in the classroom. Um, so more people are certainly doing it, and I think a lot has to do with reaching these um, people early in their careers or even before they come uh, into, the, into the profession um, with programs for grad students that allow them to explore teaching and to get some of these basics under their belt before they even uh, begin as faculty members. And then new faculty um, 
academies and orientation programs that have real substance and help people to, to come in and be able to use these tools and, and techniques. And so I do think we've seen a, a great expansion. Um, a lot more people are out there uh, offering um, workshops, offering things on, on campuses, and really the whole landscape has changed for faculty development where there are many more opportunities to learn about things from your desk, you know, instead of um, having to, to make a huge effort. So I think all of that has worked together, but there's still a long way to go. If you walk down many uh, hallways, to this day, you're going to see a lot of uh, traditional lecture-based instruction going on. So there's the battle is not, you know, the war is not won, I guess I should say. Sure. Uh, yeah, and Rich, what, uh, what's your take? Uh, yeah, I, well, I agree that uh, active learning is probably the uh, exhibit A in the in support of the hypothesis that things are changing and that some of the reforms are taking hold. I think technology uh, is huge, and I think we've only begun to see the tip of the iceberg. You can do some things with technology that you simply cannot do with traditional teaching in a traditional classroom in terms of getting students actively engaged, in terms of exposing them to a much greater variety of presentation modes. You can give them lecture clips. You can give them videos. You can show them the bridge collapsing, the building falling down. And then most importantly, I think, in terms of technology, you can uh, quiz students on whatever they've just been presented with. Give them quizzes. And uh, if they get a question right, they get a virtual pat on the back. If they get an answer wrong, they get a gentle correction, an opportunity to try again. And you get a lot of learning going on if you get that sort of thing going for you. Uh, when technology-assisted instruction just meant watching a 50-minute videoed lecture, yeah, not so much. But in terms of what you can do in terms of interactive engagement with students, it is tremendous, and I think we're very low on the learning curve now. As it gets better and better, you're going to see traditional schools being forced more and more by their online competitors to get into more learner-centered teaching, one, because it works very well and there's a lot of research to support it, and two, because the competition from online programs and MOOCs is going to get stiffer and stiffer. And unless you use good technology or good pedagogy, uh, you're going to find yourself at a competitive disadvantage. Yeah, I, and one of the things that has struck me, uh, and I appreciate your bringing up technology, is um, and, and, and uh, the current... Uh, the current administration, uh, the non, the for-profits have gotten a almost uniformly bad name, and there's some that deserve the bad name that they've gotten. But on the other hand, some of the for-profits have been pretty innovative in their use of technology for you know, keeping up with students and whether they're attending and and whether they're um, whether they're participating and and to the point of also being engaging in the the classroom. And of course, um, we have these these non-university entities that have formed networks of 
MOOCs, which in many ways I find more interesting, less interesting for putting a bunch of lectures online and more interesting that they're really experimenting with different institutional arrangements of how we organize teaching and learning. Uh, comment. We'll start with Rebecca, then Rich. Well, absolutely. I, I think you're you're right, and, and this is a very exciting time to be in the field and to see what's happening and the possibilities um, that are there. I think um, there are some things that the face-to-face classroom environment, um, very often project-based work and, and um, work that may have a service component to it where you're working in the community and uh, developing your skills through those kinds of, of projects, that's the best, perhaps, in a face-to-face kind of environment. A lot of other things can be done in just a, a number of ways, and people have even done some good experimentation about virtual teams that cross yep. cross boundaries. So I think um, I think we always have to look at the students and to think about what are the things that they need. There's always going to be a place for that face to face sort of experience, but I think we can. Um, we can experiment, and a lot of a lot of exciting things are happening. Because I don't think it has to be either or. Most of our universities, if you look at, at the courses students are taking, even the ones who are there resident uh, at their university yep. are also taking online classes. So it's a very interesting mix. Well, and there's a on. sense of sort of centralization of tech, you know, it's another one of these contraries, the sense of the centralization of technology and mass quantities, large numbers, and intimacy. And when, yeah, I, when I hear the stories, uh, you know, we've had Barb Oakley who wrote the foreword to your book on the show, and so she's got this MOOC with about a million people in it, and the stories in those settings, um, so human beings are going to find intimacy somehow. They may self-organize to support each other. Um, certainly not going to come from the instructor in a million-person MOOC, but it, it's going to come from somewhere, and it seems to me it's that kind of experimentation that we need to um, to be doing to find out how to keep things, if, if we're going to scale, how do we keep things intimate as well? Rich, comment. Yeah, uh, I, again, completely agree. It, Shortly after MOOCs started appearing, it was fashionable for traditional brick-and-mortar campus administrators to just dismiss them as uh, you can't possibly provide good education in a setting like that. And I don't think you can be so casual about dismissing them before. Uh, I watched uh, Barb Oakley's uh, Learning How to Learn MOOC, which is now pushing two two million people uh, signing up and watching it. And... Your comment about intimacy is uh, really insightful because in some ways uh, I felt that even though she was talking to two million people, she was also talking to me. You know, she was addressing comments to me and my problems as a teacher and things that I might be able to do to help students uh, become better learners. And this is something that it takes a very, very skilled classroom teacher to give students a sense that he or she is talking to them. But Barb and her partner, Terry, on that MOOC, I think, pulled it off. They convinced me that this was com- these were comments they were addressing personally to me, 
And once people start really learning how to do that on MOOCs uh, and using tools of technology that allow personally addressing students, giving them feedback, allowing them to interact with each other, uh, MOOCs are are definitely here to stay, and they're just going to keep getting better and better as we improve our understanding of the technology. Yeah, and I, I want to, and we continue, as, as long as there's been engineering education, there's been engineering education improvement, even going back to the early, you know, 1900s and you know, the, the, uh, the m- many of the uh, things you mentioned, the Grinter Report in 55, and, and so we're always, we're always trying to improve engineering education, and we're always responding to the times. Um, uh, Rebecca, you were involved in um, in the Succeed Coalition back in the '90s uh, uh, co- uh, curriculum coalitions, and um, I guess I'm and now, and now we have uh, another program, Reimagine Engineering Departments, the RED program. NSF continues to put fairly large amounts of money into th- these kinds of things. Um, you know, what did we learn from the coalitions, and and what can we expect out of this next? generation of improvement processes? Well, I think one of the things we learned out of the coalitions, and Rich was also involved with the Succeed Coalition as well, um, was the real power in cooperation and collaboration as we looked at these common problems uh, across different um, colleges of engineering and looked at ways that we can share um, ideas, uh, build on each other's experiences. And I think that um, it, 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 there was a, a real power in that, and a lot of important uh, things came out of it. I think the real emphasis on the first year, changing that first year of engineering in um, ways that have, it's really spread um, across many, many institutions where students in first year of engineering now get real problems. They're working together in teams. They start to see how engineering really works and get excited about it. So I think that's just one example of of the kinds of things that came out of that coalition work. And I think it was all about that collaboration and building trust and building on each other's ideas so that good things could happen. I think the new initiative, which really emphasizes the departmental level, making some transformation in departments, I think that's got a lot of promise because that's where people live. Faculty live in that culture of their department. And so looking at making changes there that are real and substantive, I think has a great potential. We just have a, a, a little bit of time left together. We could. This is a topic near and dear to all three of us, and we could go on for a good bit longer. But um, I want to give you a chance, uh, and, and Rich will give you the chance to kind of point people where, what, what websites, what uh, email addresses uh, can people inquire to get more about uh, about your book and about and about your writing and and your work. Yes, uh, I have a website that I've maintained for probably the last couple of decades. Um, It was initially just me, and then when Rebecca and I partnered up, it became devoted to both of our work. Uh, The easy way to get there is www.com. 
ncsu.edu slash effective underscore teaching. And if you go there, um, you'll find links to practically everything both of us have done. There's a page devoted to the book. There's copies of practically every education-related paper that we've written. Uh, there are uh, the columns that I've been writing for chemical engineering education for the last 20 years. Just short little reads, some okay. serious, some humorous, but uh, everything is on there. And then there's lots of other good sites out there right. that uh, I'd have to look up. Well, uh, anyways, thanks, thanks, Rich. That's great, and uh, I hope people will uh, wish you wish you, wish you best. Uh, uh, best wishes with the the sales and and the of the book and the continuing work on your seminars and and workshops. Thanks thanks for joining us today, both uh, Rich and Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Uh, special thanks to our guests, Rich Felder and Rebecca Brent, and help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.